Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for Worry Warriors 2.0. And the reason that it is 2.0 is because we hosted last school year a Worry Warriors program, and we wanted to make sure families knew that this one was going to be a little bit different. Times have definitely changed since we had the last Worry Warriors program. So a lot of today is going to address some things related to how our lives are different and what we can do to help our children through this pandemic, but also build resilience and work through everyday stressors as well. We are so lucky to have this program brought to us in partnership through the Greater West Bloomfield Community Coalition. The director of the coalition, Lisa Berkey, is here with us this evening. She has been so gracious and generous with us over the last, I would say, three to four years, bringing us programs and partnering with us when we aren't even in West Bloomfield. So thank you, Lisa, so much for being here and for helping us support our children in the area of mental health. We are forever grateful. And today, I'm sure all of you are so sick of hearing my voice. So we have somebody else who is <laughs> the most fabulous child and adolescent psychologist. Her name is Nikki O'Donnell. She is beyond talented in her field. And I say that like truthfully, I as a mental health professional am super picky over who I recommend. And she is just top notch gold standard for a mental health professional. And I am just so excited that all of you get to learn from her today and grasp some pieces of her knowledge and her skills because she is incredible. So thank you so much again for being here. We will take questions. If you could put your questions in the chat, my role tonight is going to be moderating the chat feature and the questions. So put them in. You do not have to wait until the end. I'll kind of know when an appropriate time is to bring up the question to Nikki and make sure it fits in with the discussion that we're having at the moment. I encourage you guys to turn your cameras on if you feel comfortable. This is an intimate enough setting where we'd really love for it to be more like a round table and a group conversation. So if you feel comfortable, please turn your cameras on. And with that, just enjoy and soak all of Nikki in. She's amazing. So Nikki. Oh, man. you. I just thank you guys so much. Kim is incredible. You guys know that. I also know that. Um, and I'm just so excited to be back um, with the Hillel family. And I, it was an incredible experience when we did Worry Warriors 1. So I'm so glad that we can bring a 2.0. And hopefully, you know, the fact that we can now do this virtually and all the things, you know, looking on the bright side of that, you know, maybe makes it a little bit easier for folks to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, be able to tune in and to do this together. So thank you guys. I'm so excited to be here. Um, one thing that I will say, so just like Kim said, as we go along, if there's a question that you have, type it in the chat. I love, I, I could talk, I could talk for a while about childhood anxiety, um, but I want to make sure that I'm very, very, um, I want to make sure that you all leave at least everyone in this chat leaves with at least one thing that they're like, wow, that was really helpful for me. Um, I want to tailor this for you guys. And so that's a really great way to do that is if I, you know, if there are things that sort of stand out or even if it's just a, you know, Nikki, can you talk more about that thing? 
I will absolutely do that. So I have an outline, but it's very loose because again, I want to make sure that I go in the direction that would be best in, and most helpful um, and relevant for everybody. So please feel free um, to do that. And I'm actually going to have a challenge for you to start out with. It's not really that challenging though. Um, if you could, because I think I'll see them as people type, right? I think um, if you could put in the age of kiddos that you have, that would be wonderful. Can you do that right now? Can everyone stick that in the chat for me? 79. Thank you. Thank you. 24. Awesome. Okay. Okay. 16. Awesome. Sophomore. Six. Okay. You may see him pop in. <laughs> yes, Kevin. We'll say hello. Two and four. Wonderful. Awesome. So, oh, 13, 11. Awesome. 19. Okay. Perfect. Thank you, everybody. That is really helpful to me also. Um, in general, this is the sorts of things that we'll talk about or it's gonna span, I mean, a lot of it'll span the, the lifespan regarding childhood, you know, anxiety itself. But if, if I can pull in a couple of things that I know lots of people from different age groups um, for the same, you know, age group of kiddos, um, I know that's always super helpful. So that is so good for me to know. Thank you, everybody. Wonderful. So it looks like we have everything from two-ish to like 19-ish, so excellent. Um, like I said, we're gonna talk all along um, the, the childhood lifespan there, um, zero to 18. We're gonna talk lots about what is anxiety? Um, how does it affect kiddos? It, did it change all of a sudden magically since March? Is this something different? Um, I'll share with you guys some, some personal stories. I have a daughter who is three, her name's Violet, and I have a son, Zane, who is eight. And they give me lots of <laughs> good ways to um, use examples and stuff. Just because I'm a therapist, make no mistake, I am a parent who also often looks at my husband and says, what, what, what do we do with that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I have my own people, my own little village and, and therapists that I'm so lucky uh, to work with to like bounce ideas off of as well. So please know by no means <laughs> am I an expert to my own self and just know also like you don't have to be an expert in your child. We're way too close way too close to them. So I love that um, all of you are reaching out and, and kind of connecting in this way to get more information. That is like sometimes the most loving thing that I think that we can do for our children. Um, so I commend everyone, gold stars for everybody. That is something that, you know, as, as grownups, you know, we're busy and in, in life and all the things. So even those little um, little tidbits we pick up along the way um, for our kiddos is just, I just think that's incredible. So with that, thank you guys for giving me the ages. Um, what I thought I would do is I would start a little bit with a story. So a lot of um, what I'm gonna sort of share with you, I would love for this to be fun. Would that be okay? <laughs> you guys will find along the way, I have like all, I wish you could see in here, but I'm not gonna show you because it's a, it's like kind of a disaster. It's all clean back here, but it's like a disaster right here. Um, I have all kinds of tools and things that I pulled from my office today that as I was looking like, ooh, I want some new stuff that we didn't see last time. So you guys are gonna be treated to some new things that um, I am including in Worry Wars for the very first time. So we'll do a lot of Worry Wars part one, and then we'll also have like the, the point or 2.0 as we're calling it. So the story I wanted to share with you guys is a really good example about the way that the world for a child looks different 
than the world as we see it as adults. Our brains are little, literally different. Um, the mechanisms, the development, right? We can see this really early on. So remember when your babies were teeny, teeny, tiny, and they were just, you know, learning things like to walk and to talk and all of those things, right? And we like know the milestones, like, oh, they rolled over, they can sit up and, you know, oh, wait, this happened a little early, this happened a little late. You know, we're very in tune, zero to one, right? Like, we're on it. Um, and as they get a little bit older, you know, we kind of have some milestones, right? Like motor skills and they learn to ride a bike and all of that. But, um, some of the cognitive things we, we kind of don't really, you know, it's not like we're making a big deal out of those things, but actually, so from zero to one, there's all this activity and even zero to five, there's all this activity, but we kind of ignore what happens from five to 25. And that is actually a huge part of the brain that develops. So when we talk about anxiety, one thing that I think is incredibly important is to look at what is what is happening in the brain. How do we make sense of this? Because we're we're grownups, we've we've made it to that point. Our brains are as developed as they're going to get, um, but they're very different than what a child's looks like. So the way the things that make sense sense to us are not necessarily going to make sense to our kiddos. So we have to communicate with them a bit different. So I'm going to give you guys some very basic, hopefully fun tools to use to sort of appeal to the fact that their brains just are not, we're not in the same, we're not on the same page here. Um, an example I wanted to give is the way that, like I said, so from zero to 25, our brain is still developing. This front part of the brain, the frontal cortex right here, very important. It's actually the last thing to develop. And here's the sad part about that. That's the part that governs things like logic, things like um, delayed gratification, things like... Uh, being able to see like, hmm, this, this thing I'm doing now, not a good choice for me later. That's the last thing to develop. It's why we can think back to like when we were in college or high school and think, what was I thinking? Why? Why did I do that thing? It's because literally, literally our brains were different. So let yourself off the hook because you literally had a different brain. So that's unfortunate though, right? Like this part of the brain, like you, we, we sort of need that as quick as possible. And we don't, it, that's the very last thing that sort of comes into play here. So for children, the world looks very different. And sometimes the world as, as they experience it is very, very scary. So here's an example of that. I actually have two. This one happened this weekend. And I was like, ooh, that's a good one. So my daughter's three. Um, and so... She's actually my, my, my son, he's the, the eight-year-old. He's the more like, um, he runs on the anxious side. He comes by that, honestly. But my daughter, I don't really get as much as out of in that way that I did out of him when he was young. But recently she was pretending to drive her dad's car. So she's sitting in it while we're like cleaning out the garage. And she looks in the, in the, the rear view mirror, right? And she's looking at her teeth, she's looking at her teeth. And all of a sudden tears. And I'm like, what just happened to her? I'm like, did you get hurt? Did you bump your face? I'm like looking, no, no, tears, tears, tears. And she's three, she can't communicate right in the way that I can. So I'm like trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to put the pieces together. What just happened? She, every time she looks in the mirror, she's crying. And I'm like, what in the world's going on? She's touching her canine teeth. You know, the ones that are a little pointy, right? If you don't grind them off, which I apparently did when I was younger, but right, they're the ones that the kids develop, they're the pointy ones. She's looking at it and she's holding it. I was like, is it loose? And I try to like wiggle it and I'm like, it's not loose. Okay, what, what is going on here? So she's inconsolable. We take her out. I'm like, okay, like I'm just, like, I don't know. So we let her calm down. She calms down a little bit and um, she's able to tell me, um, what well, I don't want a shark tooth. A shark tooth? I don't, I don't want a shark tooth. 
saw that it was pointy and in her head. So I'm like putting this all together and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I was like, Violet, did you think that was a shark? Did you think that meant you were going to be a shark? And she was like, yes. She thought she was going to turn into a shark because she had a shark tooth. I was like, oh, sweetheart. Okay. So <laughs> this wasn't helped by her brother in the backseat at the time who was like, that's the coolest tooth. It's like, it's like a shark, you know, like she's gathering this information from her environment and in her little brain, the logical answer was like, I'm going to turn into a shark. We know that that's not the case to a three-year-old. They don't know that. Right. <laughs> that's the kind of logic we're dealing with. So things like a fire alarm, right. To us, our brain goes, Oh, fire alarm. Could be in a could be a false alarm. Could be you know the battery is running wonky. Could be a, a hundred different things to a young child. It's just loud and scary, right? They don't have all of those kind of other pieces to the puzzle to know like okay, this is probably not an actual threat, right? The alarm button just goes off. So that's what happened for poor Violet. <laughs> As they get older, they're going to have all kinds of different experiences, and those things are going to look scary. And the hard part is, as parents, we can't always anticipate what a scary thing is going to be, right? We just look at behavior. The part of the brain that develops um, the ability to communicate what we're feeling, the part that develops like th the thoughts about it happens first, and then the ability to communicate it happens later. So kids are experiencing, you guys probably saw this with really young kiddos, is that they understood things before they could actually verbalize it. Right. And especially with really like like high, you know, functioning, really intelligent kiddos, that happens even like at a at a more kind of rapid pace. And then you get tantrums and stuff. Because again, I don't have any way to communicate to you, but I'm I'm understanding more than you know than I'm able to to get out. So we have all of these differences in the brain going on. And so it's very natural for the world to look scary in ways that we wouldn't really think of as adults. Um, for children, that can be obviously like really emotionally difficult. As parents, it's even harder because we're trying to like reverse engineer what was, what's the, the scary thing? Like, what do I need to reassure them? Like, how can I, what do I do with this? Um, part of what we're going to talk about today are the different tools, like things as parents that we can do that um, can be really helpful. So different, you know, therapist hacks and things that I often will work with families in session um, and have them practice at home. But we're also going to learn how to even talk to our kids about what anxiety or what a worry is, right? Because that those words for us has a meaning, but for a child, that's like, nothing. That means absolutely nothing for them. Um, so even if we try to explain it to them, again, you know, their world looks so different and their brain's functioning in a very different way than ours is. So we kind of have to, again, reverse engineer how we're dealing with anxiety. Uh, with So with that, I think one important thing to know is that anxiety, like we said, it could, you know, they could be fearful of something. They could be scared of something. It comes out in different ways for different kiddos. Um, some kids, they might not appear upset. They might just appear frozen. And that's how anxiety could look for them. Some kiddos might appear really agitated or angry. That's a common one. Or defiant, right? Ugh, digging their feet in could look like that. It can look like tears and unconsolable and, and fear, um, but not all the time. And more often than not, I see one of the other things you know, before I'll see anything else. As kids get older and they're able to verbalize, you might get a little bit more. Um, but even for teenagers, and uh, the, the majority of the, the kiddos that I work with right now in session um, in my office are teenagers. 
And a lot of us make them, they make the mistake, even the kiddos like Zane at eight, you know, he's, he can verbalize, he can do all of the things. Um, but eight to 18, even that part of the brain still isn't fully developed. So I can't always rely when I'm talking with teenagers that they're actually verbalizing that they're actually able to get it out, even though they appear like a, like a, you know, a, like a large, you know, a large t a, a large child or, you know, a young adult, they're not, you know, cognitively, we're still in a different, a different ballgame here. So I always remind myself of that. Um, because it can get easy, right? Especially if you have older kids that you can, you know, like really have deep conversations with. Um, but when it comes to things like anxiety and worries and emotions in general, because those can really heat things up inside, we lose any part of that logic when our brain and our body gets too upset or too overwhelmed emotionally. So I always kind of keep that in mind, even with the older kiddos. So as we're talking about this too, again, I want to relate it all along the, the lifespan when, when we're talking about childhood anxiety and just in general. Um, something that I think is really helpful to know it's exactly what anxiety is, what's happening in the body. So some of you might be familiar with the fact that cortisol is the stress hormone. So stress, right? Like it, stress isn't a terrible thing. Um, I had for a long time when I worked at Henry Ford, I worked with athletes um, for like the, the, you know, the lions or whatever, you know, the people who really need anxiety in their life, they need a level of stress so that they can kind of function in the zone, right? They can't have too much of it because then they lose all ability to perform, uh, but they can't have just, you know, like not enough of it because then they can't perform. So, you know, it's, it's the same thing for a lot of us in life. If it's that we have to give a presentation or we have to, you know, go into a meeting or something or take a test, enough, you know, just enough to get our brain a little bit of that, that edge, that competitive edge is good, but too much. And then we're disabled. So we're kind of like walking this very thin line and cortisol is the thing that's responsible for that. If you've ever had the experience of um, something really scary happening, right? Let's say like a close call or like, you know, um, I'm thinking of like <laughs> Zane when he was younger, he would like tip back on the chair and it would give me like a heart attack every time. And it was that one time and like mom cat like reflexes, <laughs> like, you know, kick in and I'm like catching him mid fall. And you know how you get that wave of like panic in the moment, but you're reacting and it's like takes a minute for you to catch up. Like, oh, don't do that. Oh my gosh. That's cortisol. That's cortisol and that's adrenaline together. Um, anxiety itself is when that cortisol is rising up so quickly and accumulating that the body doesn't have enough time to metabolize it out again. So for children, when they get really upset, right, and that stress hormone is getting kicked up, it's very difficult for their bodies to metabolize it out. It can take up to 15, 20 minutes before it's fully kind of metabolized out. So interventions that we do with kiddos surrounding worries or anxiety we don't do when they're at peak anxiety, when that cortisol is coursing through their brain, because their bodies are, you know, just fight or flight in that moment. We wait until either the anxiety is not happening at all, or they're within like a minute of a, a good mood, right? They're pretty calm, because that's our best bet. They already don't have all of the things we need up here for logic and all that great stuff. Um, but on top of that, if they're upset, then we're like really, you know, having to work a little bit harder than we need to. So we always wait till it's a little bit calmer. And, and cortisol is that reason. When uh, our body is managing cortisol appropriately, serotonin rushes in, it kind of like gets everything 
ah, back to normal. Uh, for kiddos though, again, their bodies are still developing. So when they're experiencing the world and things look scary and you know, all of that can go all wonky. So the things you might see, like we talked about earlier, it might not look like anxiety. Um, you know, like I said, sometimes it looks behavioral or defiance or just sleeplessness. It can even be physical symptoms, right? If anybody has ever experienced high, high level of anxiety and had stomach aches or headaches as a result, that's very common with um, when cortisol overload kinds of happens in the body. So for little kiddos, that is a really difficult thing to try to make sense of. Um, with making sense of it, though, they have us, right? So then we have to get in there and like with the shark tooth. <laughs> had to find a way to communicate to this a sweet little girl that she was not going to turn into a shark. Now I could have an intelligent conversation with her and try to explain like, well, this is why and your cortisol is at this and you know, she's three, even Zane, he's eight. That's not, I mean, it's just not, he might like kind of get where I'm going with it, but like, it's not going to really get me where I need to be going. So I need to be on their level. So this can look like a lot of different things. For the parents that I've worked with um, when it came to anxiety, how to talk to their kids about worries and anxiety was probably the most helpful thing that they ended up taking away from it. Um, because we give kids, when we give them language, all of a sudden, the part of the brain that's emotional and really overwhelmed, all of that stuff has to transition over to the part of the brain that's kind of analyzing and looking at something and really able to, you know, all the parts that are there for logic and reasoning, it gives it to that part of the brain. That's what we want. So if we can give them a little bit of language to use, get them separated from the feeling a bit, it can make a huge difference. So even if I told you no other strategies than just how to talk to a kid about the anxiety or the worry that they're having, that sometimes can be the kind of the thing that makes it or breaks it. So let's first talk about how to talk to really young kids about worries or anxiety. Let's say um, we're talking with like Violet, right? My three-year-old or a two-year-old, very young, right? They're going to understand a lot more of what we're saying than they're going to be able to communicate back, but we still need to use very, very basic language, right? Um, so young kiddos, kindergartners do really well with this stuff. We're going to actually use a grown-up version of it when we talk about it with the teenagers, but it's very similar. All of this is kind of like along the same lines. When I work with very, so now I'm gonna get my prop out. When I work with very young kids and I wanna to talk to them about something serious, I will probably, I'm like getting a thing, hold on. <laughs> I will probably use a puppet. He's super cute, right? Actually, this one really scared my son when he was little so we couldn't use him. Actually, we used another one. I'll show you the one we used for him. Ugh. Violet likes the, likes the lion. We used the elephant for him and look at his nose does. That's so cute. Gosh, these are all from Amazon. Um, and I am not a puppeteer in any way, shape, or form. But what happens is if we're trying to communicate with a kid about something difficult or, or something um, that is like really close or emotional to them, and we use something like a puppet or a stuffed animal, maybe, right? My son has this little poo bear that he loves, he still loves that thing. It will probably like never part him, but um, we would use Pooh Bear a little bit. And, you know, I would talk to Pooh Bear maybe about what was going on and then he would just be listening. Or I would let, let like our little elephant here, I would let him sort of speak for me and ask questions in a silly voice. So it took down the anxiety and the discomfort just a little bit, um, but it also kind of pulls it away from us because now we're playing, right? And the way that children learn best is through their play. So if we can use that, let's use it to our advantage, right? 
sometimes for kids, that's a little too silly for them. And that's totally okay. As they get older, we don't use this with teenagers. They would be like, what in the world are you doing? Or maybe they'd like it. I don't know. Sometimes, I don't know. Sometimes I'll pull some stuff on the teenagers and they're like, uh, that was like crazy enough and weird enough that I kind of thought it was cool. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, but the thing that we do when we're using language to talk with, oh, sorry guys, am I still there? There we go. When we talk to kiddos um, about their anxiety, we don't call it anxiety and we don't say your worries. Instead, we'll do something like, call it the worry bully. That's what we did with my son. Or maybe we'll call it the brain bully. Or maybe we'll call it the worry monster. I love that one too with younger kids. I'll even talk about this with um, my older kids or my teenagers. And instead of calling it like something silly, like a worry monster or something, we'll just call it your anxiety. What's your anxiety talking about right now, right? So one thing, one purpose that this serves when we call it the worry bully is that it kind of takes that experience and it puts it on something else, right? So this is really effective for young kiddos is we will actually have, like we'll get whatever the worry monster looks like. We picked this one for um, for Violet. If you guys, if any of your kids are into like Brian's World YouTube channel, yeah, it's, this is a character apparently from that. Uh, but he looks like a little pirate. He looks kind of savage, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes we'll have the kids draw their worry monster or their worry bully. Um, for the real young kids, obviously, as they get older, this like, kind of like loses its effect. But for the for the younger kiddos, the elementary kiddos, this is really effective. We want them to see like, what does it look like? W what are we talking about here? When you start to get scared, we're gonna that's that's just your worry bully talking to you. What does he look like? What color is he? Man, he can be really mean sometimes. He really creeped you out. For Zane, you know, when he would have worries and things, um, it would be about things like bugs. Right, if you've got a, like a bug kid, he still has a thing with bugs, um, or he'll think he saw a bug, right? And so we'll say, or he might come to me and say, "Mom, the worry bully has been telling me all day that there is a bug in my room, and it keeps freaking me out, and I don't like it." Right, so it's not he's again he's separated from the experience, and that's what we want. So with teenagers, what is your anxiety telling you right now? You're having anxiety. You're clearly worried and stressed. What's it trying to tell you? What's it trying to convince you of? And so they might be something like, you know, I, well, I'm convinced my, you know, my anxiety is telling me that my friends are mad at me, even though they didn't say that they were, they didn't, you know, like, uh, like I don't have lots of evidence to, to show that, but my anxiety is telling me that that's what's true. It can also help us problem solve, right? So if it were something like, let's use something universal, um, monsters under the bed. Right. Okay. What is the worry bully telling you about monsters in the bed? Well, the worry bully is telling me that you're going to turn off the light and there's a little monster in there and then you're going to leave and then he's going to eat. Me. So first we're like coming up with this fantastical story, right? We're having them verbalize it. Some kids at that point will be like, okay, this is already sounding silly, <laughs> especially the older kids. Right. When we actually have them put words to it, it kind of starts to unravel because it's the other side of the brain that's really working that anxiety or that problem. Um, we want them to be able to problem solve. These are these are the pillars of something called cognitive behavioral anxiety or cognitive behavioral cognitive behavioral therapy, which is used to treat anxiety. <laughs> but we're really just looking at dissecting the thoughts, the feelings, and then our reaction to them. So we want those skills to be like totally on par, right? We want them to be able to logic out a problem. So this is one way to do it is we first say, 
what is the worry bully telling you? And then we might say, hmm, okay, monster under the bed. Interesting. Hmm. We the we could say something like, there's no monster under your bed. That's silly. We could say that, right? How many parents had parents, people had parents who said that? My parents said that. That's silly. They didn't know. There's not a monster under there. See? No monster. But then you're still scared, like the next day, right? It's because the logic process didn't go through our brain. Our parents were just telling us that there wasn't. They tried to reassure us. But our brain missed critical pieces of information. So it couldn't put together the whole story, right? Violet's brain missed critical pieces of information when she didn't understand that just because you have a pointy tooth and a shark has a pointy tooth, it doesn't mean you equal shark. <laughs> like we had to kind of go through a bit of, right? Like we have to lead them to this kind of to the answer themselves. So with the monster of the bed. Okay, hmm, interesting. So I'm never gonna tell them, you know, that's silly or crazy. I'm gonna say, interesting. Ooh, that, so the worry monster is really convincing, right? Because clearly you're scared. Yeah, totally. Okay, awesome. Hmm. Do you think they're right? Do you think that worry bully's right? And they might say, I don't know. I, I, I don't want them to be right, but I'm really scared. It's like, okay, hmm. let's see if we can figure this out. Have you ever seen one? And they might say, no, hmm, I've never seen one either. Interesting, okay. I don't know, do you think it's, do you think the worry bully's telling the truth or do you think it's making it up? And they might say, maybe he's making it up, but I'm still not sure. It's like, okay. Have you ever heard of any friends who've had a monster under their bed and then they couldn't come to school because they got eaten by it? And then they might laugh and be like, no. <laughs> it's like, okay, interesting. You know, I've never seen it on the news. I feel like I would see that on the news. Monster under bed eats child. Like, right? Like, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that. And then maybe now it's getting sillier, right? Like, okay, pieces are getting put together in their head. They may still feel anxious. They might still be a little freaked out, but now they're using a different part of their brain to process the experience, right? And we're kind of having fun with it, right? We're poking fun at the worry monster or the worry bully or the brain bully. We're not poking fun at them. We're not you know, trying to tell them that they're wrong. We're saying that this other thing, just like we deal with any other bully, right? Like, what, what are we gonna say to that bully then? Okay, well, monster under the bed. I'm gonna tell the worry bully that he's full of baloney and I don't believe him. So now what we're doing is now we're giving them skills for how to talk back to a boss, right? That we don't have to just accept that what we're thinking means that it's real. And that's sometimes really, really kind of like the thing that the turning point for kiddos is when they realize, I, I don't have to accept what I think. Just because I think it doesn't mean that it's true. Let me really think about this. And they need us at first. Even teenagers, a lot of times, need us to help them walk through the logic on this, right? What is, as they get older, you can use things like, what's the evidence for and what's the evidence against this? You know, you, you really think your friends are mad at you and you're really upset about that. Like, all right, all right, let's talk about it. You know, did you misread a text? Maybe how you read it is changing the experience. Is it possible there's anything else they could have possibly met by whatever that it was that they said? All right, and what are the context clues? When you went to school today, were they, you know, did they look any different? Did they say anything different? No, okay, interesting. Is it possible it's just your anxiety, right? Then again, they're learning skills and they're working through it in a way that helps them get that logic part activated. And that's the thing that can really help us kind of logic out some of those anxiety um, worries and issues and stuff, even from when kiddos are very, very young. So we can kind of start the process. When they're very young, 
that's, that's kind of like a nice time to start it because we start a dialogue and there's always a way to talk about it. So kids who had the language of the worry bully or the worry monster when they're young, even as they get older, they may, that's how they're going to accept it in their head, that this is something outside of themselves. And I'll do this in a lot of ways with um, just anything in behavioral health, to be honest. Um, If I have kids who are coming in and being treated for depression, say, right, we may talk about depression thoughts. Like what, what kinds of things is our depression, you know, like really communicating today or thinking, right? So we're kind of connecting the idea that the thought itself could be, you know, creating some kind of feeling inside of us. But again, outside from us, it's something that we get to be on a team with our parent or our therapist or whoever, and we're going to tackle this together because we don't have to accept everything that we think is true or fact. So that's just a very small way that we can start getting kiddos just to kind of think about um, the fact that maybe, maybe this is a worry bully thing. Is this a worry? Is this something maybe the worry bully would tell you? Hmm. Yeah, could be because this sounds a little bit, it sounds like a little bit too crazy to be, you know, to be true or legit. Right. So we're coaching them. And a lot is of, of parenting really is coaching and modeling. Right. Kids will have a tendency to want to avoid things that make them scared or stressed or whatever, right? Like we want the easy button. Teenagers will do this. Grownups will do this. <laughs> Let me just get out of here. I love the example that anxiety is kind of like the kid throwing the tantrum at Target. Okay. <laughs> We've all seen it. If you're me, you've been there. Kids throwing a tantrum. I want the thing. And I say, you can't have the thing. So they are throwing a tantrum because they still want the thing, right? If I give in, right? They're happy for the moment, right? But what happens? I've created a monster because the next time we go to Target, they're gonna, right? Their brain is like, ah, to get the thing, I just do the, the tantrum and then I get the result that I want. Anxiety is much like this, right? The more we give in to whatever it is, right? If we give, go along with whatever the anxiety says, like, I don't wanna wear though, you know, like whatever it is, I don't wanna go out the front door because it's too scary, right? I'm just making something up arbitrary. And so instead of we say, okay, okay, that's fine. Let's go out the back door. We'll just go out the back door, right? Inadvertently, what we do is we validate in their little brains with our actions that whatever they were afraid of is is probably like a real thing because our actions then followed suit. We listened to the worry bully and we're like, okay, let's not go over there. Let's just go this way. In the short term, it does work, right? They're like, Okay, thank you. But in the long term, we're creating this giant monster that the front door is scary and terrifying, right? Um, So we don't want to do that, just like we don't want to give into the kid in Target, because we create, you know, a problem where it's just going to get stronger each time that worry is going to get stronger and stronger each time. And then when we try to overcome it, right, we're like, okay, we're not listening to the worry bully anymore. We're going out the front door, because the worry bully doesn't call the shots in this house. You know, we call the shots in this house, not the worry bully. What's going to happen is that the more we've built it up, the harder it's going to be. So then, right, our kid's going to try to like fight or flight out of there. And it's going to be a little difficult. It's going to take what we call exposure, exposing to the thing that it's, that it's fearful for them or scary. We're modeling that it's not scary. Initially, the worry bully throws a big tantrum all the time. Um, but just like riding a roller coaster 100 times, right? On the hundredth time, our body doesn't even produce adrenaline anymore. It's just boring at that point, right? We habituate. And this is what a lot of growing up is. It's habituating to new situations, new circumstances, and learning how to cope and deal with them, right? When, when kiddos first start school, 
right? Can you remember being a kindergarten parent? Oh my gosh, isn't it? I think sometimes it's more scary for the parents than it's for the kids. I remember what they have to walk in by themselves and how are they gonna know? You know, like I had all this anxiety and, and they did as well. And if my anxiety is high, then I know theirs is gonna be their little sponges. Um, so when they're very, very young, if we were to say, okay, well, you never have to do that thing. We've, again, we're creating, we're giving into the worry monster. So instead we're gonna, we're gonna even if we don't necessarily feel it hundred percent, like right, walking into kindergarten the first time, we're modeling what we want them to be able to do, right? We have to model calm, cool and collected for whatever the scary thing is. If their scary thing is bugs, I don't like bugs, but Zane would never know it <laughs> because I have to pretend that that is not a thing that is freaking me out. Um, because I don't learn, I'm not listening to his worry bully. So in order to expose him, I, you know, I really have to kind of, you know, model to him what it is that I want him to do or how I want him to handle being in a situation where he's scared, for the example, about bugs. Um, that's a really critical piece for young kiddos because as they get exposed to something, they gain confidence. And that's so huge. Um, kids, as they get older and they master new skills, right? Isn't it the best thing ever when you, see in your child or your teen that they've figured something out or they've like mastered something or they've earned something that they have only themselves to think like that feeling of pride that they have i'm thinking of like potty training right now with my three-year-old <laughs> like the feeling of pride on her face when she you know is successful or gets a sticker on her chart or whatever it is um like you, nothing can compare and i can't do it for her you know, I wish I could, but I cannot do it for her. So they gain this wonderful, um, this wonderful sense of, of self-worth and confidence. So encouraging them, not allowing ourselves to be taken in by their worry monster and encouraging them to, you know, face some of these fears and for us to kind of model and walk by them can be incredibly powerful for them and also for us to see them gaining that strength. Um, a lot of times I'll use things like books. There's a really great one. Um, that I love. It's called Brave as Can Be. Looks like this. But it says, Brave as Can Be, a book of courage. And it's these really awesome pictures, right? Like the front cover looks very scary and you open it up and it's not scary at all, right? And so all the pages kind of, it's a very cognitive behavioral backbone kind of book that talks just lots about how um, something might seem scary at first, but the more we kind of like think about it or explore it, it might not be that scary at all. So though that kind of messaging to young kids also can be very helpful. They learn through stories. You guys can, you know, like if, think about school when you're very young, right? Um, they learn about kindness and manners and all the things we want to like teach them. We are either doing it through play or through stories, right? Or maybe in a show or a movie, there's always a moral. It's kind of that same idea. We could use that to our advantage, especially if we notice that our kiddos, even young, maybe are having, um, some anxiety or some fears or worries, having some books that sort of have a theme of bravery or, you know, it, again, it's a safe way to talk about hard stuff if it's just in a book, if it's a character in a book, right? The same way that we use the elephant, same kind of concept. The last thing that I really wanted to share with you guys was a couple of my favorite fun tools that I use with kids. One of my favorite things to do um, with kids and with teenagers when they're really dealing with some some anxiety is to build them a coping kit. This can look like a lot of things. So a coping kit can be a box with tools in it, right? It could be a bag with things in it. All of the things that I put into a coping kit are something that will help their body or their brain calm down when they're feeling really scared or nervous. And so as a therapist, we use this stuff all of the time because I could teach them a skill, right? I could come in and say like, all right, Dane, we're gonna learn a breathing technique. 
and either they're gonna like roll their eyes or they're gonna be like, oh, what are you talking about? So instead I'll bring out something like bubbles. We've all done bubbles, right? Of course. But what you might not know about bubbles and why they're such a great coping kit tool, right? In order to blow these bubbles, hopefully this works. Right? <laughs> when we have to blow a bubble, right? We have to take a deep breath in through our nose. We're like filling up our belly like a balloon. And then what do we do? You didn't see it, but the bubbles came out, right? <laughs> if we blow too fast, what happens? Nothing. If we blow too slow, like barely anything. But if we do it just right, we get bubbles. Yes. So what we're doing is we're teaching a child diaphragmatic breathing with something that's actually pretty fun, right? And the more that they do and practice it, especially if they're in a moment of being really upset, it's kind of a quick way to get a reroute. If they are, if they're already like at the top level of upset, don't bring out the bubbles because they're not going to get anywhere with it. But if they're they're not quite yet there, or if things are going well, and you just want to kind of strengthen those muscles for when they need them later, it's a great tool. Um, again, it's a, just a different way to teach a breathing technique. Um, there are all kinds of um, things like that when it comes to sensory tools too. So we want to use our senses, right? It's this mindfulness. Again, we could say to our young child, we're going to do some mindfulness tools to put in your coping kit, but it's not as meaningful for them as if we hand them maybe um, some different things, like maybe something they can touch, something they can smell, something they can hear, right? And then we talk about how our body sometimes can feel scared. And when our body starts feeling scared, we can use our senses to sort of help it kind of chill out. And all we're doing is we're doing a grounding exercise when we kind of focus on the things that we can hear, we can smell, we can touch, we can taste, all of those things help our body kind of get into the mode of, we are not in fight or flight. The pan We are not in a point where we need to panic or be scared. I'll teach mindfulness sometimes, this is kind of fun. You don't have to have something like this. This is not, it does not need to be this fancy. Um, if you guys seen this game, it's called What's in the Box. It's my son's game. Has a little part where you reach in it. You could literally use any box. And there's another part where you reach in and you can like feel around for whatever you put in the back of the box. Right. So I will use this at work to teach mindfulness because right, you can put anything in there and you have to really use your sense of touch. You really have to focus in, right? Your brain can't be anxious and also be critically thinking at the same time. So again, it's kind of another sort of trick to get the brain refocused. I had this wonderful uh, mentor when I did trauma training um, in Philadelphia, and he he would use this great example. It was this very wonderful, sweet old man, and he had the most awesome, like, purposefully hideous suits that he would wear. <laughs> like, that was just his jam. But it, it would there would be these three-button suits, and he said um, one tool that he would use, he said, I would use the fact that I'm a very old man to my to my advantage. And when someone was in his office having a panic attack, he would look at them and he'd say, can you count the buttons on my suit? And they would be like, what? <laughs> Thinking like, what is this man doing? What? Can you count the buttons on my suit? And so then they'd be like, there's three. And he'd say, how are you feeling right now? And they'd be like, uh, okay. It would literally, sometimes stop panic attacks in their tracks because what he was doing is he was switching their brain from emotional centers to problem solving. I use this a lot with young kiddos, my young kiddos. 
Uh, in the grocery store, when they're going to throw a tantrum, because that, again, over emotional center, I will get the other part of their brain going. So I will do something, probably. <laughs> now they know my tricks, but I will probably do something like, Violet, what? what? How many how many tiles do you think are on the floor over there? There's got to be at least three, but I can't really tell. And she'll be like, I'll do it. I'll count them, right? All of a sudden, she's focused on something else critical thinking part of the brain and the emotional part will slowly kind of come down. Doesn't always work, but it is a magic trick to kind of keep in your back pocket. Sometimes you look a little crazy. It's okay. Don't be afraid to look crazy because your kids, again, if we confuse them a little bit, it kind of makes the brain do this like, huh? <laughs> Wait, what? What's happening? And that's always a good thing with anxiety because again, we want to kind of shake the brain a little bit and get it sort of back online so we can think a little bit more logically. So those are a couple of my favorite very favorite things that I use. Um, I have quite a few different um, apps and things for teenagers. Sometimes I'll use. There's some great um, virtual reality, like using the headsets, um, apps that are free for um, their cell phone, and they just drop the headset. I like get the Google Cardboard headsets um, off Amazon. They're like eight bucks, but uh, they're all kinds of things like relaxation. It might walk you through. You might be you might put it in and turn it on and it's like walking you through a meadow. And again, it's just that focusing on mindfulness, um, trying to hook into what is a technique or a tool that a kid will either find interesting or fun or actually use. So for the older kids, we get a little more creative when it comes to their technology, because there's quite a bit, quite a bit that we use with those ones um, for those who have devices or cell phones. Um, and again, all of those things are just helping build the part of the brain that's going to help them problem solve and know again when they're having, you know, when it is anxiety, when it's not just you know, them feeling really overwhelmed, it actually has a name um, that we can do something about it. And they feel a little bit more in charge and that's really empowering for kids. So with that, I would really love if you guys had some questions, maybe things that we mentioned here or things that would be really good or helpful to talk about. Um, any off the anybody's, top of anybody's head? And Nikki, so, it's okay if they ask specific questions related yeah. to their children, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. I will say um, one thing that I always do share with parents too, is if, if the anxiety or the worries that your kiddos are experiencing is something that's getting in the way of like their normal functioning or, or taking over areas of their lives. Those are some of some of the things that I would kind of see as like, okay, this might be a good time to seek out maybe a therapist or a counselor or somebody to get, just get some ideas and bounce them off of them. Um, I use a couple different tools that I usually give to parents before I even see them. One of them is called the spirit inventory. Um, and it's just kind of like a little checklist to see what are the severity of the symptoms. Of course, for parents, it always feels huge, but doesn't necessarily mean there's a huge problem all the time. And that kind of helps me get a good gauge of yeah, kind of where to start or whether therapy is appropriate or not. But yes, specific questions are great or if there are certain things you guys are struggling with. Um, one thing that we know for sure, like we talked about in the beginning, is that the world, kids are little sponges. And even and because they can't make sense of a lot of what's happening, when a global pandemic happens, when they're seeing, you know, like even just hearing like during the week of election um, and, and the political climate and all this stuff, it's interesting the kinds of stuff that kids in therapy will talk about. And they don't understand any of it. But what they do see is they see what's happening maybe um, in their peers or in at home or if someone's looking upset or stressed, they're really perceptive on that stuff. 
Um, so that kind of, you know, is another thing right now that we're seeing that we um, wouldn't necessarily normally see, right? Because it's just, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot, and it's a lot of change. Kids are very adaptive, um, but it's, it's very difficult for us as adults to adapt, right? Like that's hard. And though our kids are adaptive, when we're having a hard time, there's a little trickle down that happens. Again, they're like little sponges. They know what's going on here. So again, that's another thing that ups the ante right now, I think, for a lot of us with, with young ones. Andrea mentioned that she loved the sensory rings that you talked about last year. Oh, you know what? So they are, oh, I think I have them. We are, we as a staff are now obsessed with them and you cannot go to a leadership meeting without at least two of us with these sensory rings on our fingers. Yes. When we're in person, I have like. has hers right there. Yay. Oh, I love it. So it's, it's essentially, if you go onto Amazon and you type in sensory tools or sensory um, therapy tools, so many things come up. One of my very, very favorite picks is they're these sensory rings. They're these little um, metalish <laughs> rings that you put on. They're a little bit tight. It's an acupressure ring and it feels really cool. But again, it's like a sensory distraction for the body and it's just very calming. So, and again, it's a ring, so it's super discreet. I'll use that with teenagers all the time. That's a very good one. Um, and that actually made me think of another really handy one. Um, when we're talking about coping tools, sometimes we don't have them handy. Like maybe we're at school and we're, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, um, a really, really handy one. If we want to kind of help trick the autonomic nervous system a little bit, um, if we get kids in the habit of going to the bathroom and running their hands under cold water or holding ice, if they have it, there's something really cool that happens in the body and it does, it will help kind of do a little mini reset on our nervous system. It does kind of confuse it a little bit because all of a sudden we have this really kind of intense physical experience and it will, it will stop a panic attack, panic attack in its tracks. But even as far as like calming us down, you know, if you've ever like splashed water on your face, the same experience, if you just have your hands under that cold water, just for even a minute can be really powerful. Yes, I swear migraines. Yes, that's such a good one. Same kind of concept, right? Yes, yes. Again, we're trying to distribute the attention in the body and kind of using that to, um, to our, our benefit there. And also with the cortisol, right? Like our, you know, we're, we're kind of like wired to if we're having um, uh, like a, a fear experience, you know, like it kind of turns off our ability to be hungry, you know, for like fight or flight. So like having the coldness, it kind of like helps like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm supposed to do this. I got to keep our hands warm, but then I can't maintain this thing. Um, yeah, kind of another little hack. Kind of in the same way that gratitude, actually, practicing um, thoughts of gratitude. And this is a good one to do with kids if when things are going well, right? Like what is something I'm really grateful for today? Um, it's impossible for the brain to be both grateful and anxious at the same time. Like they can't, they can't do it. <laughs> so even just that practice kind of really can, can help be a good reset um, for kiddos and for us. I, that's a good one. That's a good one for anybody. <laughs> so Nikki, you'll love this. And I'm not sure if our parents know this, but every single day after lunch, our students say a prayer, Nikki, which is called the Birkat Hamazon. Mm -hmm. And then after the prayer this year, the whole school participates in a mindful minute. And it's every single day. 
And it is um, one to two minutes of mindfulness exercises. And each day it ends with the time is now, you are here, and we're all pretty okay. So the kids are school-wide doing this and practicing mindfulness. And even those verbal reinforcers, like I'm okay, help bring the level of anxiety down. We talk to kids all the time, like, this is how I feel and I can handle it. So they're getting those messages every single day. And it is now part of our school culture. Can we do that everywhere? Because that's like, I mean, it gives me chills a little bit. There is something to be said for, um, I love I love this little saying, therapists have all kinds of sayings that they use, Kim knows it. <laughs> but our body is constantly eavesdropping on our thoughts, right? So like giving in to the tantrum, anxiety, you know, situation, you know, we'll do the same thing. It will just kind of, you know, spiral itself. So having those little moments of practicing, I am okay, because we really are, we really are. And then grounding in that moment, you know, I think that is just such a huge thing. Another aspect of this is that because we're kind of experiencing a, like a, a global trauma, you know, it's a storm for everybody, but it's a different storm for everybody. Some people, it's just like a little sprinkling and others are just trying to keep the roof on the house. We're kind of bringing up lots of generational trauma stuff that just like, you know, gets passed down for generations. There's a lot of research about that. Um, and kids right now, they we need it's like pouring into just not, not just them, but ourselves, but especially them, the tools that they're going to need, because this is something that, you know, I think is, um, it, it's just creating and, and triggering a lot of just, you know, again, generational stuff, you know, through history. So Nikki, the Jewish people are yeah. famous for intergenerational transmission yeah. of trauma. So particularly anxiety. That's yes. 100%. So, yes. Yeah, so you are yes. right on with that. Um, yeah. One of the parents asked if you could say the name of the kids book again that you really recommend. Yes, it's called Brave as Can Be a Book of Courage. And it is by Joe Whitkin or Joe W-I-T-E-K, Wittek. But if you put in Brave as Can Be a Book of Courage, I got it off the Amazon. Everything's off the Amazon. <laughs> what can't you find on Amazon? Parents, is there anything that your kids are experiencing that you might feel is unique to your child that you'd love to just pick Nikki's brain on while you have her? It could be like getting up and getting ready to go to school. Um, we, we see a lot of school refusal every year and this year wow. it's, it's more so. Um, it could be you know, worried that something is going to happen in their friend group or someone's going to get mad at them. It could be um, worries about not performing well academically. Um, those are like some things that we see pretty regularly. So um, don't be shy. Feel free to ask. And we do have a question here. Um, what's, what's the best way to handle that's not fair? Oh, I love that one. Yeah, there, we have a pretty classic <laughs> line that we say at Hillel, which is fair is not always equal. But Nikki, I'll let you, I'll let you take it from there. A great one. Yes. Well, and this I'm going to like pull in if anyone's familiar with love and logic, I'm going to pull in some love and logic, uh, which is a really wonderful a lot of teachers use love and logic curriculum basis stuff to um, help empower kids and do lots of accountability and all of that. But um, yes, 
you know, one of my favorite golden lines is you're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> right? Like that is, you know, what's, what's really frustrating. I think sometimes um, for us is that we maybe feel like the need to like engage or like give an answer or like win somehow or like show that we're you know like a power struggle that's a great one right kids love to throw out that's not fair they don't make me do it this isn't fair and and what we want them to do we want to be able to be like well it is because of a b and c and this is why we need you to do it and even if it's not fair here's the logic they don't care they just don't they don't want to do it or they want they disagree <laughs> right so in instead of even getting engaging right it is it, it every opportunity possible. We're validating them. Man, you're you're probably you're probably right. It doesn't really change it, but like I hear you, man. So validating feelings sometimes can be a game changer, but also it kind of takes the pressure off of us and also really models to them like we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're we're not here to argue with you. That's one of my favorite ones. Or um Oh, what else? You don't love me. You, you don't, you know, like, I, you're the worst. So-and-so's mom doesn't make them do this. And I'm like, you're probably right. Oh, you're probably right, man. <laughs> you know, and then they just kind of like, all right, mom's not engaging here. Um, that's another, another really great one uh, that kind of piggybacks on it is that if we want to get our kids to be really smart problem solvers, we have to pretend to be really dumb. <laughs> right? My son, constantly right now will you give me a bowl of cereal and i'll be like can i have one yeah yeah i don't know where the bowl is i'm like what are you gonna do about that that is a problem <laughs> I, he always figures it out right whatever it is if we want you know what am i gonna do I don't know, what are you gonna do, <laughs> right? And then they get very capable. And then they, again, kind of that that good, you know, self kind of self-esteem building, all that good stuff. But yeah, if it's not fair, yeah, it's not fair. Sometimes it's just not fair. <laughs> Isn't that a good preparation for life? Like, yeah, you're probably right. How many people Sorry. want Nikki in their homes with them every day? <laughs> um, oh, okay, that. Nikki, our, we have another question. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit about a little kiddo around five who mm -hmm. is experiencing like a lot of fear around failure? Oh, that's a great one. So high achieving kiddos. I'm not, I'm going to like, I know nothing else than just what you told me, yeah. but um, very often, very high achieving, very bright kiddos, like kind of beyond their years, right? Sometimes we'll experience this. Is that maybe similar? Is that kind of maybe the situation? Perhaps. Perhaps. Okay. okay. So with very bright kiddos, um, they are very, like a lot of kids early on, we get lots of praise, right? Like when we do things well. And if it's a kiddo who generally does things well, right? If they run into something that maybe, maybe they, they're not doing as well, or maybe they even have a perception that they might not do as well. Um, then that's going to feel way uncomfortable, right? Because they're way more comfortable with doing things very, very well. So this is the one route, right? Like if we've got a kid who's just really used to doing things well, and now they're encountering stuff that maybe is just a little bit harder. Um, that's the one end of it. Another end of it might be just the fear of either feeling bad or maybe disappointment, right? Perceived or real um, that, that if they aren't, you know, performing to a certain level, 
five is tough, man. Like we're just starting school and education and we kind of now are in this structure that maybe we hadn't been in before. We're praised when things go well. Um, kids who have a difficult time with that, it's actually kind of, there are a couple different routes that we can take to sort of help them. The, the logic, talking, doesn't do much, right? We could tell them till we're blue in the face. It's okay. You don't have to get it right every time. That, that, I mean, it's good to hear those things, but it's not as effective as maybe showing them that it's okay. So kids who are afraid of failure actually need more experiences where they get good at it so they can be resilient. And usually it doesn't start with, we wouldn't throw them into like, I know they're going to fail. So I'm like, let them do this. I would probably model it first right? I would set myself up in situations so I could show them what I want them to do when they fail, right? So first, we're taking a passive approach, right? It's not about them anymore, right? And with a young kid, maybe I'm even watching certain shows or reading books that sort of have a theme. Because again, like, that's not about me. So like, I can hear it a little bit better than when it's about me. Um, but then when parents start modeling, right? Some of the things that we want them to do, if whether we're doing it in a silly way or a funny way, those the kids are picking up all the time. So if we're going to model, like, I'm going to set myself up for something that I know is going to, you know, whatever, even if I'm just pretending in some way, shape or form, they pick that stuff up. And then it communicates something, it really is okay, right? If I can do it, then it really is okay. And then also, I sometimes will really encourage kind of praising um, the work right? So getting in the habit of rather than saying things like, you're so smart, you're awesome, which like, right, it's hard not to say that stuff, because like, we love our children and stuff. Um, instead, just tweaking it just a little, and maybe having it be something like you worked so hard on that. I'm so proud of you. You worked so hard, right? We're praising the effort, not the results. And that's the thing that, again, for, for kids can really kind of help soften them to this idea that like, it's okay, it's okay <laughs> that we fail. So finding opportunities for that, even in things that they perceive that they failed in, right? And again, we're just helping getting them in good practice of that. Hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. I was going to say, we often have stomach aches at my house. Mm -hmm. And at school, we have stomach aches. Um, and it's not really anything specific all the time, but um, often complaining about stomach aches. And it does seem to coincide with times when we're feeling nervous or anxious. Yes, that's it. I'm sorry, guys. That is actually a really common one for young kids, especially because they don't have the verbalizing yet, right? So their bodies are doing all the work. Um, when cortisol and stress hormones really high, we'll get the tummy aches, right? Or they'll be in the bathroom sometimes or just that, you know, like, again, that's a really common um, kiddo anxiety response. And it's extra challenging sometimes when there's not an actual thing, right? Because if it's a thing that we can like problem solve from there, but for things like the physical symptoms, those are just signs that the body is like taking there, there's something that's we're like putting us over our edge, kind of like a cup that just fills up and fills up and fills up if this is stress. And then it just kind of gets to the top and overflows. So the body's doing the best job that it can to manage. But again, we're, we're getting physical symptoms. So sometimes helping kids take care of and kind of tune into what their body is doing and saying and giving them skills to help with that. So for example, you know, depending on how you talk with your kids about the stomach aches, or you know, what what it is, you know, if it's coming up at school, giving them kind of sending the message like, 
a stomach ache is your body telling you that it needs something. Maybe it needs a break. Maybe it needs deep breaths. Maybe it needs its hands under cold water. You know, your body is just, you know, maybe we, maybe we use the word stress or maybe we use the word, you know, worry, um, depending on the age of the kiddo, but then maybe we then give them like, okay, if your body's doing that, what are three things that we can do that usually can help? And then maybe we come up with those three things. Maybe one thing is first we try to run our hands underwater, right? Maybe if we're at school, right? That's an easy one. Maybe two, we say, okay, if that did or didn't work, maybe now I'm going to try my, my second mode of defense, right? And maybe um, for that one, I have a, a sensory coping tool with me. Maybe I have a sensory ring. Maybe I have something, you know, nearby me that I can use. Um, sometimes even physical activity, though it doesn't sound like the thing that would like help, you know, like that you would think, right, a stomach ache. But what it can do sometimes is it pulls the body out of fight or flight if it is stress and kind of gives the body a different job. You know, so giving their heart rate above resting, whether that's running up and down the stairs, something like that can kick in the serotonin that helps chill them out. For some kids, um, if it really is their body having a difficult time metabolizing out cortisol and the, and the belly is just really hurting, sometimes we'll even, and again, I'm not a physician. These are things you should go research on your own. <laughs> but these are things that, um, that our psychiatrists often will recommend. Not meds, nothing like that. Um, but there is a really great body of evidence that suggests that things like magnesium for kiddos who are having panic attacks or stomach aches can be incredibly helpful. Um, and there's all different, there's like gummy, magnesium gummies for kiddos, things like that. We use one, it's like a little powder, tastes like lemonade, it's called Natural Calm at night for my son when he, he knows now like what his anxiety signs are. So he'll know like, mom, I need my, my calm drink. <laughs> and again, it's just a supplement of anxiety that when the body is got that high level of cortisol, sometimes that even if, even if there's a tiny bit of it that's placebo, it's a child knowing I, there's something I can do about this. So sometimes that's a, a great tool as well, as long as there's no like food sensitivities or allergies and things like that. Um, it's nothing that you can like over put in the body because we just pee out what we don't absorb, just like vitamins. Um, but again, for kids who are running a little higher on the stress or anxiety, that sometimes can be a really, really handy one. Um, breathing techniques are also the other one. These are, stomach aches are a great one for um, the bubble breathing, um, all of that, you know, kind of, those skills can be really, really helpful, especially when we're trying to alleviate something in the body. So again, just those empowering messages, because those are tough. I think geeks are the tough ones. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. We do have one. Nikki, can you recommend a tool to support a five-year-old through a recent move um, to a new city amidst a pandemic? Man, so all of the things. Yeah. So already it's going to be stressful, right? Because it's a move and things are changing. Again, the world looks very different for a five-year-old. Um, because of that, imagine now not just like moving and having everything in the world being uncertain, but five-year-olds in general have zero control over their life, right? Like zero. <laughs> A teacher, you know, will tell them when they can, you know, like go to lunch. Uh, we tell them like when to go to bed. Here's what you're going to eat. This is when you can play. This is when you can, you know, excuse me, their whole world is kind of, you know, set up for them by us. So things like giving even perceived control back to a kiddo can really help with transition. And what I mean by perceived control is things like, I'm going to use like a very simple one. 
would you rather wear the red shirt or the blue shirt? Right? We're giving them a choice. We didn't give them an option between like wearing a shirt or not wearing a shirt. We we gave them two choices that we're like totally okay with. But giving as much as possible, especially with a new move, things that you maybe don't really care about, you know, things that we can kind of hand over them to be in charge of, feeling that empowered feeling. Maybe it's about, do you think we should put your bed over here or there? Do you want to pick out what the blanket should be on that bed? What do you think? Or, you know, um, wow, we need to get this living room. You know, we really want to make this like really great. What do you think we should put in here? Should we like put a pillow over here or should we put it over there, right? We're looking to them. We're just handing over bits of control when we can. What happens for kids sometimes when everything is in chaos is their little brains try to grab onto anything. And with anxiety, really the way that anxiety, anxiety functions for a lot of people is that anxiety will look for a job if it doesn't have one, right? We always want to try to give it one first, right? Because the thing that we give it, right? Like focus on A, B, or C, making these choices, doing this task. If it doesn't have a job and everything just feels out of control, it'll find one. And usually it'll find one in a place that you had no idea it would even exist. Maybe it would find itself in, you know, like all of a sudden not wanting, you know, throwing a fit about putting shoes on in the morning, you know, it will find a way to function. So if we can kind of engineer situations where a kiddo feels a bit more empowered or in control of some piece of their life, sometimes that kind of makes all the difference. And then again, it's kind of a relationship builder too, because it's communicating to our child, like, I really care what you think and what you feel. Um, this is good anytime, but particularly when we have a situation where there's lots of change. So we want lots of constants. The other thing to build onto that are just little mini kind of traditions, kind of like Kim was sharing, like at school after lunch every day, right? Having a prayer and then having something that we say, like, these are all anchors for children. And that's not something, that's something you can do anywhere, right? And so those little things actually are big things. When we think back to our childhood, and maybe you think of, you know, like certain traditions that we had, or, you know, like the warm feeling of like, like that's something that was ours that we did. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily do with a place or a time. It's something that we did together. So even if it's just those little things, you know, maybe every day after um, or before bed, we say three things that we loved about the day or three things that we love about each other or three things that we're looking forward to the next day. You know, all these little anchors, I think also in traditions, those things, building, building them in, it won't matter where you're at, right? And so that kind of, again, can refocus for kiddos and give them a really great relationship over with you and um, kind of the security and all those good feelings that, that come along with that too. That was a good question. Nikki, you're so awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> you're welcome. You're so welcome. Well, if nobody else has any other questions, thank you. Family, so much for attending tonight. Thank you, Nikki, for sharing your just amazingness with everybody. Um, I really do like sometimes like, what would Nikki say <laughs> in, in my head <laughs> with this one here who's been so patient up until now? Um, and a thank you also to Lisa Berkey um, and the Greater West Bloomfield Community Coalition for making this program and many others that will be coming throughout the year possible at Hillel Day School. Thank you so much for taking the time this evening, everyone. We are most grateful. I don't know if Lisa, you want to say anything? Just that Nikki will be back in April, right? Isn't that oh, the right. date? 
Yep. So we're going to be doing another one in the spring. So hoping that you will join us again. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you. you everybody. Bye. Good luck. Bye.